Some of you will be able to dredge your memory and find that you recognize the name Lawrence Kohlberg. You may be able to dredge some memory of Lawrence Kohlberg up if you ever studied his theory of moral development. Dr. Kohlberg developed a whole idea that we develop morally over time. And he identified a number of stages in that development, uh, sort of starting with something as simple as avoiding pain, um, moving on to learning to obey rules, being a good boy or a good girl, pleasing parents, this kind of thing, getting the, getting the rules right. And then, and then he talks about a, a, an orientation toward law and order and a sense that the law enshrines the moral values of a society. And he goes on and says that often people move beyond that to something more, the language he uses, post-conventional. He starts talking about enlightenment and uh, universal theories that have to be applied and the negotiation of social norms uh, along the way. A changing social contract is very confusing if, if our primary moral orientation is toward law and order toward the eternal verities, toward the way things have always been. And if someone comes and messes with that, it can be very troubling and feel deeply wrong. We've seen all of these stages of moral development in the torturous process toward the ending of don't ask, don't tell in the American military. It's all in there. And, and it's, it, you can almost pick out where people are morally based on how, how they feel about um, uh, and reactively to those, to those issues. There are plenty of other developmental theories related to learning, related to uh, psychosocial development, related even to faith development. And if we're honest, most of us can look back over our lives and recognize that we have developed in some way, shape, or form. Um, I, I, remember, uh, I remember that I, uh, the day I made a C in Chaucer, this was a tragic, tragic moment. It, it, it really awoke me to something. And what it awoke me to is that I just couldn't do literary criticism anymore. I just couldn't do it. Because I'd been so busy thinking that the whole business of education was about figuring out the right answer and making A's. And, so, and I was quite good at it, actually. But there came a point where it just wasn't in any way helping me be interested in the literature. And in fact, for many years, I've, I've read really remarkably little fiction uh, since, since those days of studying wonderful English. And I've, I've, I'm restoring that. I may, maybe threw the baby out with the bathwater. And I didn't really find literary criticism useful again until I started looking at the Bible in a way that was not just looking for rules and getting the right answers, but in fact looking for a different way of reading it rather than just searching for uh, right answers. Now, I also recognize a similar development myself, and I expect some of you will too, in your understanding of God's will. If you've been in church at all this Advent, you know we've been looking at the scriptures of the season through the lens of the Lord's Prayer. And as we draw near to these birth and infancy stories that are at the heart of Christmas, we cannot avoid a sense of sort of scriptural inevitability about the remarkable conception and birth of Jesus. The prophets foretold it, uh, everybody understood, at least after the fact, what was going on. And the inevitability of the extraordinary faith of a young woman who becomes pregnant before marriage and embraces fully that reality. In Luke's version of the story, Mary says to the angel, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be according to thy word. 
In Matthew's rather different story with our ghastly and prudish translation that has him talking about avoiding marital relations and things like that, she's, uh, we have Joseph doing as the angel commanded him, as the angel of the Lord commanded him. There's a certain kind of inevitability about God's will being worked out and made manifest in these stories. Now, do we conceive of God's will as being this thing that if we can just figure it out and obey, then life will be good? If we can figure out where the rails are, we can get on them, and then we can chug to our final destination of endless rewards in heaven for our good behavior. Is that the will of God? Is that really what the will of God is about? It sounds silly when it's caricatured like this, but it's pretty deep set for many of us in our functional theologies. I hear it when I'm told we must bring children to church so they have a moral upbringing. I remember well singing Mrs. Alexander's hymn on Good Friday, there is a green hill far away without a city wall, and it has in it that line, he died to make us good. No, he didn't. (laughs) Whatever that was about, it wasn't about making us good, I don't think, if we read the scriptures. So once I started thinking about my faith, I quickly began to cringe at that line. And every time I hear someone harumph about moral authority in the church when we seem to be doing something other than upholding a traditional law and order view of morality, uh, I'm hearing someone who's thinking that's almost like the revealed will of God. And it seems to me when we read Scripture, that's not quite it, that God's will is not this thing that if we can just figure it out, we'll be all right. It's much more relational, much more dynamic. So what is it, and how do we discern it, and what difference does the will of God make in our lives if we do figure it out? What are we praying for every time we pray, thy will be done? What are we really asking for? It's clear that Mary and Joseph respond with obedience and with trust to the messengers of the Lord God. And for us, the words and stories of those messengers are recorded in Scripture. And so Scripture is where we start. And what is the will of God revealed there? Certainly, there's sometimes a compelling and defining claim made by the Spirit on individuals. Think about the call of the, think about the call of the prophets. Uh, it usually amounts to a realization that we are compelled in some way to uh, do what really matters, to live toward what is of ultimate worth. The prophets had their compunction in many cases to tell people things they did not want to hear. Think about Mary and Joseph and their affirmation of new life and their affirmation of each other, however inconveniently it presented itself and however much disapprobation they must have had to endure. Well, think most perhaps about Jesus and his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that he be granted courage to live out his life with absolute integrity. And if there's some other way, Lord, let it be that way, and and in effect receiving the answer, uh, no, that's not my will. uh, Thy will be done, says Jesus, and thy will, God's will in this case, is that he live with all the integrity he could muster and not undermine everything that he'd been preaching and teaching as he pointed to the breaking into this world of the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God. So we pray That when God's kingdom comes, God's rule is made fully manifest 
so that we may all live in accord with what that means and have lives that really make for justice and really make for peace for all people, whatever the cost may be to us and however much conflict is engendered in the process of getting from here to there. So imagine the outrage in Mary and Joseph's circle, friends and family. Look at what happened to Jeremiah, ostracized by everyone to an almost unbearable degree, thrown in prison for making manifest the will of God. Or think of Jesus. Jesus undermined traditional law and order morality by reinterpreting the law and saying, I've come to fulfill it. It's not that it's unimportant. It's just that it's not, as rules, the whole story. And when he said that, we put him to death because we were sort of stuck as a society in a place of moral development that couldn't allow for what he was teaching. So the story of Christmas is the beginning of a story that can give us reasonable and holy hope in a radically new way, a way that unveils the mechanisms of injustice and oppression by which we kid ourselves that we are somehow guardians of God's will and so get into all kinds of moral binds. And when we get into moral binds, people die. The story of Christmas is the story that begins the making manifest of God's will for a radically just and peaceful world. It's also the apparent costliness to all of us in bringing that world into being. This story of Christmas is not one without pain, and it's not one without loss. It's not just a cute story enacted in wonderful pageants and pictured in creche scenes, but it's the beginning of something that we work out the whole of our lives long as God leads us ever more deeply into that attitude of trust that allows us to say the prophetic word or affirm life, however it presents itself, or find uh, where the limits, if there are limits, of our integrity can lie. That's what we're praying for when we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us respond as ever to the gospel in silence and in prayer.